Hello, Jeremy. Hey, Ralph. What's going on? Oh, um, well, we did a little call before the call, which we sh- shouldn't do. But, uh, well, we had a lot of private matters to discuss. <laughs> yeah, but my, I'm I'm happy to make my private matter public, Grievances. but it did it did cause me a lot of anxiety this weekend, and then well, not really anxiety, excitement. Sometimes anxiety gets mixed with excitement. Um, but so I, I've had an interesting weekend, um, and I was in Vancouver all week last week. How about yourself? You you've been traveling around. You said no, uh, I haven't. I, I've, I've I've just been. You've been uh, painting. Oh yeah, you painting. said you're exhausted from yeah. painting. Yeah. I, I do want to hear all about that. So you, you tell us first about your, your weekend of excitement and anxiety. <clears throat> well, like your uh, dreams came true in some ways. You've always said, um, hey, Jeremy, what if people just came after you? <laughs> Did I ever <laughs> say can- that? And tried to cancel you. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like a, a fantasy of yours that I'd get canceled. No, um, I never said that. <laughs> just kidding. But um, but some people tried to... Well, I don't think they tried to cancel me, but I was... Um, you were targeted. T- targeted, but the weird thing is not by name. So uh, work of mine is in a show at the Vancouver Art Gallery. And um, it's work about... Uh, it's like in a show about... Um, like the construction of white identity. And it's, it, it's a show that specifically tries to deconstruct race, you know, in a way to absolve itself of racism. But anyway, in Canada, there's a group, I guess, of people who, I, I don't think they call themselves white nationalists or anything like that. Are they but, connected um, to the truckers? Yeah, I think it's like all part of that conservative movement. And they, and they started, so, so there was a tweet and then a, news story in in like um this blog called true north which already makes you cringe and it was like a review of the show but it's mostly just about my work and how you know i'm telling that i'm racist towards white people and And what what is the work it's it's like a um kind of like an apple store display with um four augmented reality filters and like advertising slogan above it and the slogan says, when you're the problem, we're the solution. And then the filters like each solve like a like a problem that you'd have if you were a white person, like um, in terms of how you judge others. So mm. the one that they found most triggering, I think, was like, stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> and it puts like a mute button over your yeah, like yeah, a mute yeah. icon. Is it the one your where your mouth sort of turns into the, your mouth melts? Yeah, and then and then I but all of the filters have kind of a glossy. Um, I remember that filter aesthetic. did have a visceral effect when you use it. It's like, oh, this is creepy. Yeah, it's kind of creepy, but also they're like, this is exactly what the left is trying to do to us. Shut <laughs> us up. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. But the the best part of the article actually is that they like gave gave the show a review, like a rating at the end. Yeah, uh, yeah. zero out of five stars, which I was. <laughs> <laughs> they're like i will be coming back uh, it was almost like a yelp review yeah uh, it was very which i was quite proud these of these pancakes so suck yeah <laughs> exactly and then there was like a reddit thread you know like all these things that kind of are circular but in like all the tens of thousands of comments uh not a single person named my artist name <laughs> so so they just refer to the work of the show but never oh, actually so they see it as a work of the institution yeah, yeah. which is well it, it's I was, interesting like, because that yeah. work you you play with an aesthetic that almost looks like a, a PSA, like a public service announcement or something mm-hmm. institutional. Yeah. So it doesn't. It's obviously not like a P 
painting made by hand. It's something no. that has an aesthetic that looks educational. So you think it's the museum saying it. Well, yeah. And in Vancouver, as soon as you come up the escalator into the show, there's a didactic panel, but it almost takes the place of the didactic panel, almost like the title of the show. And so I think that also probably helped because this is the third time it's shown. What did the curator think of all this? He, he Like I had seen him posting and I was like, oh, there's, are people chatting about the work? Oh. <laughs> and he was like, are you sure you're ready for this? And I was like, ready. <laughs> it's like, ready for what? I was so excited. He's like, yes, there's a lot of comments. And I was like, what about? Like, Mostly about you. <laughs> mm. But it is like interesting to get like thousands of hate, hateful comments about your work. And then like. Yeah, somehow excited. that doesn't sound interesting to me. I would not like that feeling. But because when you recognize the. I think I, I, you know, I like all people, but these people in particular are not on highest on my list of people that like. So, not going on so, the road trip with them. In well, also the work was designed to acknowledge that this type of person might see the work because originally the show launched in a you know smaller city in the middle of Canada that's mostly white, right? So. You know, in that place, I wanted to break through, like, have a humorous piece that kind of broke the ice with that audience. Mm -hmm. um, so it's intentionally humorous. And the article even mentions that uh, in terms of con confronting, like, white fragility <clears throat> as a, you know, as a as a site for maybe introspection and humor and tongue in cheek kind of. I don't know, self reflection, but so which, yeah, anyway. My, my immediate reaction to any political art is always like, you have different dials, and when you dial up the political, mm. the aesthetic dial goes down immediately. And mm. it, there's this weird thing where we somehow see the visual side. I guess you, people also use music for activism, but in general, mm. our friends, our generation, we all make art. We're in a sort of post-conceptual generation, and so we all see the image and the aesthetics is secondary and the idea comes first. Mm -hmm. But the music we listen to is very emotional and intuitive. So um, yeah, I, mean, don't, I, I don't know what's on your playlist right now, but none of it is that sort of art school logic of like, do some material research, do some mm. research on the history, and then you assemble a work. That's not how we listen to music or the, the kind of music. So, I mean, I was recently listening to LCD Sound System and they kind of like... I mean, that would be an example where it, like, it's, self, it's self referential and conceptual, but it also sounds good. Like, I think it can be both. Yeah, um, I, I, I wonder, but yeah. Mm -hmm. But what I mean is if, if you listen to um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just I, I just I just hate Well, no, art. I mean, traditionally, you're right. Like classical music was designed to be, you know, free from from any kind of physical reference. It was emotional entirely. Yeah. So it was non-figurative. And, and in a way, in a way, you know, that by going very deep into the human psyche, you could see that as a political act as well. Well, so one of the funnier, I mean, or maybe validating comments on Reddit was like, um, someone was like, well, if this is eliciting such a strong emotional response from su such a simple artistic gesture, then it must be, you know, creative or art in some way, which, which is a nice thing to say. Well, but uh, the, thread, uh, yeah, but. The, to me, that argument is the same as saying, well, so many people 
love McDonald's, so it must be good food. Like the 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 logic of clickbait is like, oh, if a lot of people react, it must be a good work. But we know that clickbait, you can hack the mind into panic, and you'll read an article. Doesn't mean it's the article has anything to say. But let's take like I think we've mentioned Manzoni's artist art shit. You know, is like yeah. kind of artist shit before. Yeah. That would be an example of work that was intentionally provocative, also conceptual. Um, designed to get people's attention. Yeah, but um, not something that you stare at for a long time. Yeah, like exactly. You're not like, wow, the can is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> this shape is so innovative, yeah. Um, but it stands for a something and a moment in time. I, I mean, personally, that's always my goal. Um, I said to a friend, like, it's interesting because the work was made or conceived in 2014, so it was almost 10 years ago that I conceived of it. It took a while to make it, but... Um, I was like, hate must, is timeless. <laughs> hmm. And he chuckled at that statement, like that, you know, hate is a timeless thing, but, but yeah. to a certain extent, um, that's true. I, and so I'm, you can aestheticize social dynamics, I think. I'm always surprised that, uh, yeah, we're friends. <laughs> no, Just but, <laughs> but I'm always surprised that it's not a surprise, but that attention of course is valuable and we live in an attention economy, but that. Mm. Very often we realize that doom scrolling and addiction mm-hmm. to social media is a very real thing and it's psychologically damaging and it's yeah. it's hurting young people to develop and connect with their generation and make friends and all these things. Yeah. But then when it comes to politics, we all think we're doing we're being a good person by scrolling endlessly and, and engaging and, and sharing our opinion. Yeah, but I didn't design the work to be. No, it's no, actually no, no. Not I'm, I'm not. I'm, like not that, I'm, I'm not even uh, responding to you. I'm responding yeah. to the reaction. So the, yeah, the fact yeah, yeah. that a lot of people respond makes it a successful work. Mm-hmm. But we also know that clickbait and all kinds of screen yeah, addiction are, are a negative thing. But then when it aligns with our political ideology then all of a sudden we say, oh yeah, please share this article and, and convince as many people to uh, sign this petition and et cetera. Yeah, I just meant I was interested to see that there was some dialogue in all the hateful comments. And then, you know, like, like that people still trying to work it out, even though there was a lot of simplistic kind of arguments like, ah, oh, this is what's wrong with the liberal government or blah, blah, blah. But there was, you know, at the end of the day, that's not, I mean, most of the work got scrubbed away because they didn't, like, they scrubbed away my name. Mm -hmm. They didn't really refer to the conceptual, like, even didactic on the wall. Um, Well, yeah, and and that's the the point of, uh, often when people critique that art is too elitist, and then the the question is, what, what makes the art elitist? Is it the fact that it's expensive to get into the museum? Mm-hmm. Is it the fact that the artworks are expensive? Yeah. And then I remember I remember two things. I've seen a lot of exhibitions in the Netherlands that want to reach a, an audience that goes beyond the regular museum audience, uh, which which your project did in in a way with this, in this, case, all this yeah, reaction. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I remember seeing the Basquiat exhibition at Gagosian, and that was really crowded, and it was all walks of life, young people with kids, uh, old people, and uh, you could really feel that a lot of people came from neighborhoods that normally wouldn't come to Chelsea. But they all came, and of course, it's in a gallery, so the show is for free. So that was the most successful in a mm. positive way, where I saw people enjoying the work, and it felt like, oh, one of us made it in here, and that feels good, and we feel part of this uh, and we feel connected and mm-hmm. 
And so in a weird way, it was the most commercial hyper-capitalist mechanism that then made those people feel included. Right, like a Coca-Cola moment, right? Like, yeah, yeah. But but mm-hmm. then there was an interview with Larry Gagosian and they were talking about the art market being so high and normal people can't afford art. But he said, yeah, most people also don't read poetry. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was or even, a very... Or even read fiction, for that matter. Yeah, and I thought that was a very smart remark that it's... Of course, artworks are too expensive and excluding people, and etc. But there is a whole swath of interesting, subtle, nuanced content that's basically available for free or for $15. Or you can get it at the library and just nobody fucking cares. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's not the clickbait. That's what I'm trying to say. These are the very subtle... Yeah, poetic, interesting things, but we're like, oh no, I, I, I gotta sign this petition right now. I mean, I'll admit I've never really made subtle stuff, and I haven't. I have a <laughs> few on a few. No, occasions, you, your but... videos are nuanced. That I think. They, well, I always try and get in the front door with something that would get you to take notice, like yeah. you know, uh, uh, or maybe giant it's the back AR door. penis. Yeah, whether it's an AR penis or you know, <laughs> or I'm telling you to shut up. Um, I want to get your attention. It's gone wrong for me a few times, for sure. In this particular case, I don't think it's wrong because the piece was like semi-trolling that audience. But Mm -hmm. um, I tried to create space for it to be critical of both sides because I used used the tools of uh, like the anti, the white fragility, um, like Mm -hmm. cognitive bias movement. Which I'm, I've, I've run cognitive bias workshops. I really do believe um, that everyone has a bias, but I also didn't like how I was getting packaged up like a product that you could just solve everything if you just went to this kind of one workshop. And so, um, from my perspective, I was being critical of like um, solutionism on the side of you know uh, even on in, within liberal politics. And, and frankly, I think it's apolitical that people are like, well, if we just did this, everything would be okay, right? <laughs> yeah. Like for very, very complicated issues. Yeah. And I, 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 I just, there was that, there's that Evgeny Morozov book on solutionism that really struck me quite a few years ago, but it was like not capitalism really requires problems. Um, and we're all designed to look for solutions, but sometimes there is no solution. <laughs> yeah, but and, but but then the the idea that you bring problems and solutions into the realm of the arts is uh, yeah is is wrong to me. So I know, but but I but you know that I like I start history in a different spot than you do. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and that's totally fair, and you should be able to do whatever you want. But for the sake of uh, mm-hmm. I. I it's not totally wrong. It, it, there's always. It's not black and white. It's not simple. But the the issue to me is that it's a slippery slope because you can introduce a form of care and community and reaching out and you could even say a project of mine like BYOB is addressing like oh there's all these people who don't show in institutions they have no way mm-hmm. in and then we mm-hmm. create this platform. But there's a risk that you're like oh but this is so much more important than your own work. You should give your everything to this because the community and blah, blah. And that at some point, by all normal logic, making art is a selfish act and therefore a form of violence. And yeah, my counter would still be like... You, you, it, could, you could argue yeah. that way. I'm saying you could argue that I way. could, yeah. Okay, but, but I think like... 
I, I was watching a thing on Prime on, you know, they always do one of these things like behind the scenes of the contemporary art world, but they did have a, a good point. Uh, I can't remember who was, was talking like an art, an older artist painter, uh, I'm blanking, but the, the point is they said like, you know, they were being accused of having overproduced artwork in their time. Like they had made too many paintings. That was what the market was saying or something like that. And he made a good point, which was like, did anyone uh, ever accuse, like, you know, would anyone have been mad if Duchamp made another hundred works, right? Or um, if Monet had done, you know, mm-hmm. uh, five, you know, 5,000 works instead of, you know, 3,000? No, we want the most number of new ideas. And, you know, we'll let history take care of the rest, which is some ideas will live on, others will disappear. Yeah. I think when I'm making work, and I know you're the same, you don't always know if something's going to land or not. Um, and sometimes you try a spectrum of extreme to mild, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out the spiciness level. It's that, um, that, ho- uh, that, that, uh, that show on YouTube with the spicy hot wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't, yeah, you just don't know how far you should go with things, right? Um, and you do want some engagement, at least I do. I do look for some engagement because it's social work. It's about sociology. And so for me not to have any sociology, I was actually disappointed up until this show because there had been like a lukewarm um, reaction. Like there'd been yeah. a few, yeah. you know, Instagram posts by people, a tiny protest in Toronto. Um, but then by, but, by yeah. that logic, if, if for you, the, the engagement is, is a big part of it, then why still confine yourself into exhibitions and why not just do pure activism? Well, because yeah, well, you know that I do do works that are not confined to gallery spaces, and I yeah. and I do do things that are not called art, um, you know, where I volunteer within my community, just like you do. But so the, I, like, again, I'm just saying there's a spectrum of la- yeah, of, yeah, yeah, of volume, yeah. you know. Well, it it it's interesting that there's a lot of art that um, makes logical sense, like uh, Tino Segal, of course it would be better to make art that doesn't have objects and it's not polluting people and it's bringing people together and it's not creating unnecessary products for a, a perverted art market. Mm. Or you have uh, someone like uh, Rick Creed who has a show now in the PS1 and it's about being together and having meals together and playing and instead of looking at objects. And all these things make sense in theory, but then I see them and I'm just not into it. And, and but that's just it. Like they're explorations, and so not everyone's yeah, yeah, going to be successful. But, but back to that idea of the dials. Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah, it, 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 there's a Dutch artist called Renzo Martins who also does this sort of radical social practice, and he'll go to war-torn areas and interview the people about how. It's hard to explain his work, but it, it it's kind of poking fun at doing good, but it's also doing good at the same time. But he, he constantly poke, pokes fun at anyone playing with form. You know, you're just doing your little colors and your little shapes. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm changing the world and, and has this position. And there's just a danger to me. If, uh, I, 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 it's, it's my only political stance, mm. but yeah, it's just... Well, the other artists oh, in the once, show. That, once yeah. we go to the useful, when art has to be useful, then art itself becomes useless and becomes redundant. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm not, you know, certainly suggesting that it, it's it performs a use value here. Like, uh, there, there's certainly way better work in this show than mine. Um, so I, I don't, I definitely don't. And how, how so? Like, in what sense? 
Well, like there's a, you know, a Fred Wilson piece is one of my favorite artists of all time. Um, there's, you know, there are works by other artists that are, but it, it, what, what there's makes, like nail paint. How do you work. measure whether something's good or bad? Well, just, you know, like based on its historic value, I guess. But that's a good question. Like I personally appreciate the works and I, and I look up to them, you know, like I would look up to a Fred, that's one of my influences and favorite artists of all time Yeah, for, for its ability to take what we take for granted inside of an institution and make it visible, even within aesthetics, right? Mm -hmm. Because the aesthetics that institutions choose might, you know, misalign or align with certain histories and trajectories. Yeah. Um, and beauty itself, which I think the curators, um, uh, did an excellent job of a shout out to, to John Hampton and Lillian O'Brien Davis, but that, you know, in, in this particular exhibition, they try and draw the history of beauty as it relates to, the construction of race and white identity and that, you know, some of the earlier works were like, you know, in the United States, American curators identified Greco Roman sculpture as idealizing white beauty when in fact they had mistaken, you know, old Greek sculptures for not, you know, that had lost their paint as having been painted white, um, mm. you know, which then became part of how we identify, um, you know, whiteness as beautiful in art history and like, you know, there's the whole John Berger way, ways of seeing, way of looking at art too, which is like, is it just a woman? Is it just a naked woman? <laughs> right? Is Or is yeah. it a paint? You know, it's not just a painting, right? It's it, And in fact, when you see naked women in old paintings, quite often they were actually enslaved. You know, they were uh, part of a sex trafficking. Uh, so there's politics in there, right? Like I'm just... Where am I going with this? Except to say that, like, even when you try and assume that something is based purely on like base level principles of yeah, beauty, yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. There's going to be some political, you know, stuff going on behind the scenes. And one thing I found though that is that it's unfair in an institutional context to audiences for artists to kind of have all that. You get that all in school, right? Like we all went through art, in art school, we get that. But most of the world has no concept of that at all, and it's not taught. Because art has been stripped out of education. Mm -hmm. Even if people just saw like, you know, Berger's ways of seeing the film or read the like, you know, pamphlet <laughs> when they're eight or nine or 10 or 13 or 16 or whatever, they would probably have an easier time in your average institution. Um, even understanding uh, a purely abstract or minimal work within yeah. that yeah. that space. Anyway, Um that we did have some questions, but uh, I did want to hear more of an update on your painting because last time we chatted, um, you yeah, said it was going to be this week. You would have well, a the so I did all kinds of tests with different brushes and rollers and mediums and mixes and did all these tests on this canvas paper. Then I did some tests on canvas with different grounds, and I had it all prepped. And I was like, "This is the ground that I like. The color comes out the best." And then I have these big canvases now and today I started masking and I put the color and it just started cracking and it never did that before and it's like what just happened so I have to start all over with the ground research and it's a it's a slow thing you know well that's interesting though for you to like you know it's like you're learning something from from, from scratch that's yeah. a new yeah 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 mm -hmm. yeah but um so but are you... the, the, the the steps like every time you do a layer of ground a layer of gesso and then maybe a layer of absorbent ground is always like four or five hours in between. And but you do have an actual... It's very different than on, on the computer. Yeah. You have an actual canvas, though. 
yeah, several. Like, it's yeah. like stretched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big Did one. you stretch it yourself or? No, you no. There's it? there's a place near my studio. Oh, nice. And I I think I'm gonna have them once I figure out what kind of gesso layer sequence I like. I'll, I'll have someone do that because I, it it's like three days of the week you're just doing the ground. Just doing just gessoing, really. Well, maybe once I get the technique down, it's fine. But it really is mm -hmm. like maybe two, three layers of gesso and sanding and then a layer or two of wow. absorbent ground. And yeah, because I want this, this paper like feel to the paintings. Okay. Did you learn that on YouTube or is that, did you consult someone or how did you learn that? Um, well, Austin Lee is a, one of my best friends. So I, I see him once a week and we talk about stuff and he gives me tips. And then he has a friend who has a paint mixing company and mm. he came to my studio twice and then... I haven't started yet, but he has a business where he consults people on finding the right texture and materials and gloss, and mm. he, he can mix certain colors for you if they're not available. Because he just has so much experience with paint. Yeah, he, he worked in a pigment store and now started his own business. Yeah, I mean, so, the pigments on his work are incredible. Yeah. No, but this is not him. This is another guy. Oh, okay. Yeah, but, but New York is filled with painters, so there's definitely a lot of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of thinking I'm I'm quite jealous of you right now because I've been trying to use I can't use my computer as much. It's just like oh, a fact of my eye. That's true. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, Raf is like living the life I should be living. I shouldn't be on this computer." What what <laughs> I should be setting up a painting studio. Yeah. I I do think your frugal side would be hard to deal with because it, every step costs a lot of money. But then it would be like medicine. So like you know, it would be like necessary for survival. Anyway, I'm gonna start yeah. drawing instead. Maybe maybe you should have a a synth. Oh, like yeah, set up a a music station. Music, because then you could also get rid of your guilt. Because I I feel like a lot of people have a guilt to making art, and mm. if you get rid of that, you're like, oh, I can play music. That's okay. It's funny you say that the guilt of making art, because sometimes if I don't make something you know in a week i feel extremely bad about myself and if i do make something i feel really great yeah but you make art that is useful and i think you used to make art more that was just you messing around for the sake of exploring yourself mm -hmm. well no i'm doing that more right now just oh, so okay. you, but but i'm finding like i keep coming back to my comfort zone which is the computer yeah and today i tried to um program a gpt like because you know you can oh, make yeah, your yeah. own gpts and i was like what if I programmed a GPT, which was like based on my lived experience and it could like tell me things that I should draw or paint yeah. or specifically oh, that's draw. Um, so but I did a drawing, but the, it's bad. The, <laughs> you would think with the challenges with your eyesight that mm -hmm. voice computing would be helpful, but it's still not there. Well, I'm going to try and develop like a Jarvis type system that's like gets me off of the computer, like completely... I'll have to use the computer. That's the irony to get it set up. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more. <laughs> yeah. But then I was like, you know, it, maybe actually it should be based on your career and you could be giving advice to mm. me when I'm not on the podcast with you. It could be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Raf says you should get a suit. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's the, you would just transcript all our episodes and then you would have two, two AIs and that's yeah. So Jeremy I, I started. I started feeding AI. transcripts in today. 
stuff. Yeah. I was like, check out this essay. Read, like, speak it like this transcript. And I, I want to put more but in. With your eyesight, is, is there a point where it will be okay? Or is this the rest of your life that you have to moderate your screen time? Um, that's a good question, but I've just noticed a difference if I use or don't. Like yesterday I went horseback riding, came home, I felt great. I, you know, oh. my eye felt better and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, why is that? You know, and it's obviously I was looking around at different distances, blinking a lot. I was out in, in the fresh air. Um, yeah, I, I don't think painting would have that same kind of, it, it, painting is still something where you're up close mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. the time and like, especially the way I do it with a ruler and tape and you're like, oh, did I miss that corner? And Yeah, you're still so, focusing. Yeah, so I think hiking is a totally different thing, yeah. Earthworks, maybe that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why don't you make the world's largest poop or something like that? <laughs> you call it You call it the problem with white people. And this is a <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, anyway, I'm, I'm excited to hear that you're you're finding a way forward on that. Um, uh, well, today was me. was not a great leap forward, but the, uh, I had a lot of fun prepping, and then finally, when I got the parts together, I'm like, hey, it's not working. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. I mean, I know there's that moment whenever you have an idea in the you know in the shower or whatever, and you're excited to try it, then you try it, and you're like, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm when you when you it. work, uh, I hope I get into uh, to a point where. You, it becomes iterative and like you try yeah. different steps. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought it's think of it as like almost like a paragraph or a chapter of a book, but like, you know, you kind of start writing and they're like, Oh, no, yeah. this sentence leads yeah. to that sentence. And yeah. What does the character do next? Oh, he figures this out. You know? Yeah. Um, we had a couple of questions. I don't know if we yeah. want to try and get Let, through let's, these. We, we have two of them that we could do today. All right. Should we start with the Lily slot over? Slotova. Sure. Yeah Lily, yeah, Lily has a longer question here. Um, hello, Jeremy and Raphael. Do you want me to read it? Sure. I have just moved to Berlin from Vienna, both great cities. That's me saying that, not her. Uh, and would like to know your thoughts on moving to a new place in order to find an, a better fit community for your art practice. In art school, I was given the advice that you should stay in the city that you studied in because that's where you built your artistic community, peer group. What are your thoughts on this advice? Uh, what advice or tips would you have for an artist fresh in a new city, Berlin specific or more generally? When do you know when you have found a place artistically that you can settle down into? Context, I grew up and studied in London, was in Vienna for two years, now Berlin. Thanks for doing the podcast. Love listening uh, it to on my lunch break. Okay, thanks. Um, so we don't give advice, right? But we can talk about the... I mean, I recently moved cities. You've moved cities a few times. We've talked this about it on the podcast This is maybe one of before. the few topics where I feel comfortable giving advice because I moved around so much. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, in your experience, I think we talked about it being not so great for you in your home city where you went to art school originally. Well, it first as a kid, um, my mom's from Brazil. And so we'd go to Brazil every year and I once spent half a year there and I forgot to speak Dutch and I was completely Portuguese. You forgot how? Do you speak yeah. Portuguese? Not anymore. I forgot oh. that too. So I'm okay. good at forgetting languages. But, <laughs> um, so a little bit bilingual, bi-country person. And then growing up in the Netherlands, you have this feeling, oh, I should go explore. So I went to L.A., but then I missed the Netherlands. I came back and then I tried Paris and then I came back and I tried Berlin and I came back and I tried Tokyo and I came back and then I tried Berlin again. I came back and then I was, okay, I'll settle in the Netherlands, uh, just, you know, 
it's a good country, why not? But then as a friend had a room available in New York for a month, and I was like, okay, I'll try it. And then I met Christina, and that changed everything. Mm. But I don't know if it, it, it... The Berlin was the weirdest thing, because we've both lived in Berlin. How long were you there? Only like for six months. Really. Six months, yeah. Like yeah. So year. I think I was there one time for a period, maybe six months, and one time for maybe a year. And the time that it was a year, it was a, a weird time where I was, I had lived in Berlin, went back and then came back and just went on Facebook at the time and said, hey, I'm looking for a room. And someone just replied, oh, I have this residency. Uh, no one's there, so you can use it. So it was an apartment pretty large in Mitte for free for a year, which so awesome. sounds bizarre. Mm -hmm. So, and I had a ton of friends and, uh, you know, there was a lot of, peers and pe interesting people and so I had all I had more money than I needed because I didn't have rent and Berlin is so cheap I had a great social life I had every opportunity to make my work and somehow I was so unhappy I was just all the time I was like and then I just realized this is just not my city but that mm. took me a long time to find out what, what made you realize that though I mean I, I guess also part of it was that there was a million group shows and I was never in them. Mm. So I would be friends with everybody. I'd be at the opening, but my work just didn't make sense in, in that context. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that was part of it. And then part of it is just, I guess I like a different type of city. Yeah. That's I, kind of a good point though, where um, sometimes the city will have a scene and you don't really fit into it. Even if you're friends with those people. I mean, the same thing happened to me in Toronto. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Like where my, you know, I had friends in art, lots of, and I went to art school there. So a huge community, but I found it very hard to show my work because it didn't make sense in the local context and scene. Like, and I can see your work in particular being so unique to a certain extent that it doesn't belong to a scene. Um, and I'm not saying that about myself, but I just know that I didn't, I knew that I didn't fit in. I think in. it's the same for you. Yeah. Like there was no one doing performance. With, like I remember even I was asked to like. No, no one's doing AR penis. Well, I remember like yeah. a local performance art collective was like, hey, will you donate some money or some work to our f annual fundraiser? And I was like, no, like you've never even shown my work. I've been performing for a decade, <laughs> you know, and I'm from the city. So yeah. and they're like, oh, but, you but, know, it's not really so, what our audience is looking for. Yeah. So, yeah. If, if I was a teacher and I was giving advice, I'd. I would say focus on the work. The work itself is the most yeah. important. Your life will follow. But then in in reality, what I did was I was just looking around until I felt comfortable somewhere and, and felt something was the right place. And it, even New York, theoretically... Okay, may, maybe it, my advice is this. We don't, you don't have to give advice. No, but, but, but my <laughs> thought on, on the topic is like, yeah. where, where should I go? All these big questions, because they're big questions. My thought is that you are not really in control of your mind, and no one is. And so yeah. you think, oh, I should go. So I guess my advice is there's no advice, and I really don't know. But, I mean, in my and but you and I, for example, have never lived in the same city, but uh, we've been in dialogue for you know a decade or more. Well, we we also are lucky with this podcast that we 
have a way of keeping a friendship going, uh, even That's if true. we're in different places. And it's it's actually one of those things that actually works better when we're not in the same place. Yeah, we get pretty pissed off at each other. <laughs> no, but we don't do the podcast when we're in the same. No, time. that's true. That's yeah. true. But um, but the weird thing yeah. I'm trying to say about the subconscious or that your mind not being in control is that Berlin made so much more sense than any other place, but somehow it didn't work, and I can't really explain it. And I, I can I can partly explain it. I think maybe I think I I think I could explain it for you just in terms of who you are. Like well, at well, that Berlin time. If, felt like a lot of people are uh the the work is more research I would say, based yeah, or yeah. serious well, or i think it's part of it but also you're someone who's very anti being cool even though i think you're pretty cool and so being part of a cool, like berlin is undeniably the coolest well it's scene a party town it's a, yeah yeah there's an emphasis on nightlife yeah yeah and so if you know if you don't want to play that game like but then yeah. I, I do know you can really, as far as quality of life, you could have a really nice place to live. And that that was my logic. You like could. You in, could. In, in, when you look at cities as a cell phone plan, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, in this city, I get this many bars mm-hmm. on my phone and mm-hmm. I get this much data and I get this much minutes and whatever. Yeah. And Berlin seems very generous. It's like, oh, you don't have to pay so much and you get a lot. Yeah. But that's not everything. No, yeah, I mean, like otherwise, Calgary would be the best place for an art practice or something like that. Yeah, where I am now. Well, and 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 for example, um, there was a whole generation of net artists that all moved to Barcelona because they thought, well, Barcelona is just as affordable as Berlin, but it's by the beach, it has good food, it has sunshine, and why would we go to Berlin? But the only thing that's been true for me in my career is when I meet someone, no matter where it is in the world, and we connect like authentically and you know it it happens very quickly usually it is vitally important that no matter where i live i don't forget to reconnect with them on a regular basis mm. and go out of my way to do so and actually Kristen often reminds me like you love so-and-so like why aren't you reaching out to them more often like you is, always is Kristen good at keeping up with remote friends yeah, she's quite good at it. Um, but she's just good at like, she's just like a better human being in general, like in yeah. terms of like so socializing and stuff like that. And I think um, it just takes effort. But Berlin, I still have fantastic, like some of my best friends and artists I respect the most in the world are there. Probably a great move, like for anyone at any point, um, you know, now or 10 years ago or 20 years ago and 20 years into the future. It's more expensive than it used to be. Vienna also, though, is an incredible city, like, you know, and London. So, I mean, in terms of <laughs> Lily exposing herself to some of the best art cities yeah. in the history of time, but it you, know, is you picked a, up yeah. three of the top ones. In theory, you could think, go wherever it's the most affordable so you can have the best studio space and have a team and develop the most exciting projects. I guess. I That's, yeah, but then you could move to... Wyoming or something but then there's another thing on it, it, there's all these dials right affordable Back to the dials, interesting yeah. whatever and there's something about being in a small town that every conversation starts oh you're an artist what does that mean and it's very different when you can mm-hmm. skip the first two hours of the conversation explaining yeah. what you do and get to the interesting stuff yeah but even in Calgary like I joined the board of directors at like a media arts center like there's 
Like, and so that I would have common language. I needed yeah. that. I think you're right, actually. So that was my first impulse is like, where are my people? <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Okay, I'll join this gallery. Um, and then the and, benefit of being in Calgary is that maybe people are more open because uh, they're less busy and less... Um, there's a oh, problem, yeah, for sure. There's a problem yeah. in a place like New York where people constantly evaluate, is this worth my time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened in Toronto all the time, too. It would take like three weeks or two months or whatever ridiculous amount of time to set up a, a, a lunch or like date. You email an artist and it's like, hey, uh, could I see your studio? And then like five weeks later, the studio manager is like, no, sorry, we don't have time. Yeah, as a great example of that, I, uh, I got back from Vancouver on Friday and I, I got a surprise phone call from a friend who's like, I'm coming to the airport to pick you up. <laughs> it's like, we're going to go out for drinks and dinner. And I was like, I'm tired, but, you know, it's very generous of you to do that. And thank you. So it was an artist friend. Um, Carl, if you're listening, thank you. But um, I, that would never happen in Toronto. It would be literally considered, that would be considered impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, th- I think we should quickly read an ad. Oh, we yeah, we have an ad. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, wait, last piece of advice, though, if I can provide advice, is just that, like, no city can really, to your point about ideas, can contain you, right? Like, your ideas are bigger than any city. And, and also, so, no, no city has everything. Yeah, no city has everything. And so you really have to think beyond the city, like, to a global community. And, and art, at this point, is global in that way. And that's part of the joy of being an artist, is being able to move around. And have, like you said, Raph, like these, you know, even skipping forward on conversations, but also having new conversations that you didn't expect to have uh, all over the world. So I I always have been felt gifted that I could go to any city in the world. Someone knows who I am. I can have coffee with them or lunch and chat about the Internet and art. Yeah. And and not be a tourist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get invited into homes, that kind of thing. Um, Yeah, we do have an ad. Yeah, we're trying to squeeze a lot in here. Now, uh, I... Do you want me to read the ad? No, there's parts for both of us, actually. Yeah, you start. Okay, so, yeah, because otherwise we'll forget about the ad. So, here we go. Uh, here's our ad. Ad break. Um, hey, Raphael, do you remember Good Point episode 177? <laughs> of course. That's the one where I was wondering why museums don't make their video collections available online. Ah, okay. Well, now you're in luck. Uh, Perez Art Museum Miami has launched PAM TV, a streaming service for video art. Anyone in the world can go to pam.tv to watch video from the permanent collection as well as film festivals and uh, South Florida filmmakers. Just create an account and start watching. I love this. It's like someone fused the super easy experience of Netflix with the intimacy of the museum gallery. And it's on Apple TV too. Wow. It's got a second one now. Yeah. Cool. Well, well, we'll put the link in the show notes, but it's uh, P-A-M-M.TV. Uh, www i don't know if you need that no and uh thanks for yeah thanks jay from perez art museum miami for sending in your ad as uh yeah maybe it serves as a reminder that we're here for you uh so if you do have an ad or something you want to get it i know we let us know we we talked about doing two questions but it's kind of late is it maybe we just do a little short episode okay (laughs) are you is this for the is this for the the air or edit well we're already at 43 minutes now Uh, well the other question was very short Okay, well, let's squeeze it in. Okay. Uh, we have a little question here, a little short question from, from Sam. Um, Sam asks, uh, grants, residencies, open calls, com- competitions, awards. What do you think of applications? What about when the time spent applying overtakes time spent on actual work? 
And I joked before this podcast, I was like, don't do that. <laughs> That's my answer. Yeah. It's like the work matters more than any of those other things. I mean, it's so. it's it's one of those things where I know the the grants in the US, the responses are like, oh yeah, about seven million people responded to this grant. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, gave, your chances are a lot to. better. Yeah. Yeah. And so it it I would sort of ask around the people a few years older and like how many people do you know that got this grant or this application and see if it's worth your time the thing is having a body of work is material to apply for grant but it depends if it's an emerging artist grant you maybe have a better shot so if you're like thinking should i work or apply for a grant which comes first definitely like building a practice comes yeah. first but um, then the, the, yeah. yeah the other thing is the first grant application is the most work. And after that, you can copy your bio and you can copy your motivation <laughs> letter and all these things that they took a lot of time to make. And it, iterating is easier than just getting started. So, yeah. 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 Grants got really easy for me after about eight years, but I really struggled in my first like decade. Mm. Um, same thing for residencies. Like I'd apply and apply and not get in. Then I, and then I got invited to them suddenly randomly at one point mm. just because I was doing work that people were interested in, in you know, yeah. um, I think same thing for I, open I, calls I didn't and apply for that many. I just always applied with the same Dutch organization that is mm-hmm. kind of the standard. And most of my friends applied to it and it's, it's the thing. And I feel lucky that there was so much support in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I, one thing that's not on this list that I've focused most of my energy on, but then again, you're, you've are you had a more successful career in some, on some dimensions, but it's like relationships. Um, so I've just focused on the people, like I said in the last question, that I connect with and making work either with them, sometimes for them, or just in dialogue with them. And that's been that's led me sometimes where they suggest a grant or they're like, oh, you but should the, apply you know, yeah, for this that's competition. That's kind of the, the, the problem with the grant system that the people who get the most grants are the people who need it the least. Or, you know, yeah. they have the right friends to tell them how to apply and all these things. Yeah. And for I know. other well, people, it feels out of reach. I know. Well, I'm just saying like in my experience. So I don't know if that's fair or not, but I do yeah. think um, I just people, like to make you feel I, guilty. No, and I owe a tremendous amount to the people who I've worked with over the years. And so um, you definitely can't, I mean, you can do things on your own. It's just going to be harder for sure. Um, and, There's always that story you know, of David Lynch's first film and that he got this $5,000 grant at the time and that really got him started. It's like he, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. you never know where you might end up. Yeah, Yeah, again, this is one where... I wouldn't say there's a straight road, um, but the work does matter more. But than I, I agree. Like, if you're doing this 300 days of the year, then that's probably not a good idea. Now, have you, like, actually, when I think of you, Raf, have you ever received a grant? Have you ever gone after one? Well, yeah, the the Dutch grants. I did residencies, and then early on. Well, my whole history of grants is. When I just graduated, there was this welfare for artists. So it was lower than normal welfare. Oh. And you would get it and you would have to every month submit the artistic work that you did. And it was just enough for me to survive. So I was fine with it. Why would it be less than regular welfare? That seems almost just like cruel. (laughs) I I think the logic was that it was like 70% of the normal 
what do you, what do you call welfare the uh, but you were allowed to make another 30 or 20% above minimum wage you were allowed to make from artistic oh, activity so it's almost like universal basic income in a way yeah yeah or closer to it and i i probably did that for a year it was called the the wick the w w i k um and then i got this this grant that was enough to live off for two years. And that's mm-hmm. what I used to move to LA for a year. And, and then did you, okay. So that was for living, but then when you were making work, were you ever like submitting it to open calls and things like no, that? Or? No, I, I, I just did this one that, uh, this is such a part of cultural life in the Netherlands, the, the Mondrian foundation that there's people from that organization who come to art school to explain to you how you should apply so one of the people who was on the committee was one of my teachers. So she would explain the best way to apply. It's, it's a part of the ecosystem. It's mm-hmm. a, a lot of, it, it's, I think in, in the U.S. you have grants like Creative Time. And if you get it, it's like front page news on the New York Times. This yeah. is something that a lot of people get. It's, oh, okay. It's a, but you didn't get it. No, no, the, uh, the Dutch one I got, not the. Oh, you did. Time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. So that was big for your career then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it. So I think I got the grant twice, and mm-hmm. then it, it was two periods where I was kind of broke, and it helped me. And yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I've received um, several Canada Arts Council grants, but it was always in partnership with an institution. But in many cases, it allowed me to make work at the museum level or you know, at a level or stage that I couldn't otherwise afford to. Um, so, you know, I could pay people basically like pay staff to work with me or production, you know, do production that I couldn't do otherwise. So you could boss uh, people around. And then very early in my career, I did do some open calls, but only to a couple festivals where I would, I, you know, I thought they were gatekeeping festivals that re- it really didn't make any material difference to my career though. Um, like they mm. didn't lead to more festivals. Yeah. It was always, again, like I said, through relationships and posting things online and stuff. And then competitions and awards, a lot of that stuff you have to get nominated for. So again, you need people to know who you are. Um, unfortunately, I, I just nominated someone for an award and they received it. So, um, you know, again, you need that connection, whether that's right or wrong. Uh, it's hard to get an award without it. It's almost impossible, I would say. Yeah, um, but I, I definitely never applied to open calls that are like on the other side of the world and like scouring the internet. Oh, for, yeah. Uh, like, yeah. I, I, I've been in situations where people said, oh, you should apply to this. I know someone. And then I didn't even get it. And mm-hmm. so the I sole think, exception I can think of is there's been a few occasions where people like we're short on applicants for this grant or this residency or whatever. If you put one in, you'll get it. it should I have said, maybe I shouldn't have shared that. But that does happen sometimes too. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, but again, it's because I know people. I'm shady. I'm like the shady underbelly here. It sounds like. Um, yeah, I I can see now why you make the work you make. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for the question, Sam. It's it's certainly I, not a I stupid hope question. It's somewhat helpful, but yeah, it, it. I think we both come from a country with a public funding system mm-hmm. that is it's just part of the fabric of the art world in, in Canada and the Netherlands. Definitely in the US the residencies kind of have a there's a thing going on with between your McDowell's and your Scowhegans and stuff like that. Um mm. there is like a Isn't there's McDowell's like a circuit. the McDonald's clone in uh, that Eddie Murphy movie? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but there's like a circuit you can do in the U.S. that kind of <laughs> yeah. like prestigious residency. Well, yeah, and and then there's circuit. the irony that that's it, it, the same with jobs. Like some people are good at the actual work, and some people are really good at job interviews. And so that's the same for grants. There's people who just have a team doing grants from all over the world, and uh, they're phenomenal at grants. They're maybe not that good at art making, but I remember I had a friend though. He was like. In, in art school and and I went to school in the US as you know but like he was after school committed to like going from grant to residency to like just like trying to string it all together so that he wouldn't have to take a job right like a, you know which no yeah. one wants to do yeah. and, but there were sometimes there would be like a gap like two months he's like I gotta find a <laughs> gotta find a way to fill August September or like yeah. I'll be homeless during that time it's very stressful I was like you, there's gotta be a better way than this um, yeah so I like I wouldn't rely on it completely. Um, anyway, good question. Um, thank you both, uh, Lily and Sam. Yeah, we yeah I know Raf it is late for you. This is we're trying different times uh, of the day to fit Raphael and my schedule so that we can spend time with, like on life in addition <laughs> to the podcast. Yeah, the um, wives are complaining. Yeah, now you've got the whole paint fume thing. I hope that your your studio is well fumigated and mm-hmm. uh, or not fumigated, ventilated. Ventilated, yeah. I hope it's <laughs> I hope it was pre fumigated. Um, uh, yeah, conscious. but we have a field recording. From oh yeah, Neil's first. This this episode is packed. This is packed with uh, yeah, yeah listener contributions. And so, hi Jeremy, hi Raphael. Here is a field recording from Tusenes in Denmark. I hope I'm pronouncing that okay. From Neil's first. So um, thank you very much and see you all next time. Yeah, I like the sound of this one because it sounds warm and things are starting to get cold outside. Yeah. Um, Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks for staying warm with us today. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye.